fact. Um, one thing I argue in the book is that a lot of this was very diffuse throughout the city. Obviously, the middle of the city was quite um, quite active. That's where the Tuileries are, um, you know, right by the Louvre. Um, but there wasn't like a central district. By the late 20th century, when you have the Marais, there suddenly is. And that really reconfigures how queer people are able to meet one another um, and encounter, you know, encounter with one another. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon where I'm giving you all seven days of a free trial. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And if you join the ITBR professor level, which you'll see gets you access to all of our rewatch podcast series like Queer as Folk and Smash, and all of our Teaches series, including when we rewatched Scream with you all, when we discussed The Exorcist, we're about to do a Britney Spears memoir episode. So, oh, and The Fall of the House of Usher is coming up. You also get access to both book clubs. And while you're at it, while you're joining our Patreon, where you're getting your seven days for free, I would really love if you Make sure you like and follow us on Apple or Spotify, and please leave a review. It really does help us in terms of advertisers and sponsors. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Network, and it is just wonderful to be part of this arts and culture organization and have you all out there reach out to me. So again, remember, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And we have a Facebook and we're on X as well. Enjoy this episode, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, joined with another doctor, Dr. Andrew Israel Ross. I just love that name. Uh, it's very <laughs> stage namey. So if you want to yeah. go on the stage eventually, you've got your name, Andrew. Perfect. <laughs> I'm Andrew David Rimby. Uh, so maybe it's an Andrew thing. That's but <laughs> who knows? Uh, so to introduce you all to Andrew, he is a historian who specializes in European history and the history of sexuality. He received his PhD in history from the University of Michigan in 2011 and is currently an associate professor of history at Loyola University, Maryland, which is in Baltimore, I found out. And he is also the current assistant director of their honors program. He worked at the University of Southern Mississippi, held the Nina Bell Suggs Endowed Professorship there, and at, I think it's Kenyon College. That's correct, yep. Okay, good. And currently serves as president of the Western Society for French History. So already I revealed... Uh, what we're going to really be diving deep into, which is French history, especially sexuality in France, mm -hmm. was the former chair of the American Historical Association Committee on LGBTQ Status in the Profession, previously served on the boards of the Committee on LGBT History, which I absolutely love. Shout out to them um, because they back the Queer History Conference, um, I think, right? They do. Yeah. Good, yeah. good. Okay. Just to make sure I get all the affiliations right. <laughs> um, I love the Queer History Conference and was also on the board for the Western Society for French History. Most recently with Nina Kusher, 
He co-edited Histories of French Sexuality, Enlightenment to the Present in 2023 from University of Nebraska Press, and the book that we're going to really dive deep into or just serve as a good springboard for us is his first book called Public City, Public Sex, Homosexuality, Prostitution, and Urban Culture in 19th Century Paris, which is available through Temple University Press, who so nicely gifted me this beautiful copy. And I just can't wait to dig into your book, Public City, Public Sex. So welcome, Andrew, to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, you know, as we've been chatting and before I even hit the record button, I think what I'm curious about is why history for you? Why was this something that you wanted to deep dive and have a specialty in? What is it about just the field in general? Um. So, I mean, way back when, I just kind of always had a passion for history, wanted to major in history pretty much from the get-go. When I was introduced in college to the idea that there was a history of sexuality, um, which, you know, I did not know was a thing when I when I started college. Um, I was really engaged with this idea that we can study how our very senses of self like emerged over time, that this kind of like the things that we think are essential to us are not historically essential. They are in fact historically contingent, which means that the way we understand who we are can only be understand by looking to the past. Um, and I find that idea just incredibly engaging. And I think it's only in history that you can really fully delve delve into uh, into that process. Not English and literature. No, I'm just kidding. A... <laughs> I'm going I'm to just currently but light the to, match of the few. You have to be a really good historicist. That's what I'll argue, <laughs> which I know well, is like not in at the moment. <laughs> you know what? I, I bring that up, Andrew, as a joking point, because even with my work on 19th century male same-sex desire in literature, mm -hmm. like using Wilde, Whitman, John Addington Simmons, I have even been asked, but this is, you know, you're not necessarily reading the historical record. And my mm -hmm. whole point is I'm looking at, and even in my title of the dissertation, it's about homoerotic poetics. Like mm -hmm. I'm looking at literary evidence and I would never say that I'm actually doing the history of trying to figure out their identity. If anything, I say right away, I need to get away from their identities mm -hmm. to dig into the even more scandalous and sensationalized displays of sex. So, you know, for you, though, it seems that the historical record, that's where we would differ. Like, instead of literary sources that are fictional, for you, it's more important about letter writing or transcripts, like what exists in the archive. Yeah, um, I mean, the archive is really central to to not just the book that uh, we're focused on, but I have uh, some other kind of more theoretical pieces on like what is the place of the archive in understanding sexuality. Um, so the the particular kinds of sources might reveal different things than looking at literature. Um, that said, I mean, in the book, it doesn't happen too often, but you can't, especially in 19th century French context, you can't help but be attracted to some of the, the novels that are engaged with some of these, these ideas as well. I mean, some of the writers um, were actually looking at some of the same material, right? So Emile Zola was really interested in the medical discourses around homosexuality towards the, especially towards the end of his career. Um, 
he was also interested in how people understood female prostitution more, you know, during the the kind of center of his career. So they do inter interact. Um, I mean, it is funny because when I was in graduate school, it was it was about like it was the, um, the mid aughts. And it was like this moment where people in history were really wondering have we gone too far in trying to use literature as, as our source base, right? Because in the 90s, during the cultural turn, there was all of this conversation about the importance of representation and what historians could do with, uh, with fictional representations rather than just the archive. Uh, and I think the same thing was kind of going on in reverse in my, uh, for my colleagues in comparative literature and English. Have we gone too far with the new historicism, right? Are, are we too engaged with contextualizing and have we lost kind of sight of what uh, um, what is actually going on in the text? And these days, I, I feel like there's almost a detente where we, we understand that, you know, fiction is a historical source as well. Uh, it can be used in dialogue with other kinds of sources. You know, my book, as you said, it's mostly letters, archival, the police reports, that sort of thing. But we can't exclude this other kind of set of, of documents because they too, they're, they're enmeshed in the same, the kind of same symbolic field, the same uh, impulses, the same so, uh, social uh, context as all the other stuff I'm reading. Uh, so I really, I really like um, kind of looking at the dialogue in some ways between the two. Well, because I have you here and you already mentioned a buzzword, which is new historicism in terms of theory. Um, Right. There's old historicism and there's new historicism. And every time I've taught this to my students or how I was taught it, I have always scratched my head. Like, I think I understand it even when, like, I'm explaining the process. But right, old historicism does not look at contemporary, is not interested in, like, current, current cultural trends. But new historicism, you're supposed to, like, pay attention to how the past is impacting the present. Is that right? Or like, how would you just define those differences? Um, so those two terms are much more, um, they're a bit outside my my own realm of expertise because I think they're much more current in conversations than literary criticism. What I would say, and I think in my own research and interest that you're referring to is kind of a conversation between different kinds of historians of sexuality about the relationship between the past and the present. Uh, and there was a really important book that came out um, Think about 10 years ago now by Laura Doan on how we might approach the relationship between these, between where we are now, and where we once once were. Um, and she defines a term called, uh, uh, and I sometimes get the order wrong, so excuse me, Professor Doan, uh, queer critical history, uh, which explicitly says it is not possible for us to kind of abstract ourselves from our present moment, right? We can't like simply say, well, I'm gonna take an objective look at, 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 at what occurred in the past and just kind of remove myself from my own present identity. And therefore, every time we look at the past, we are shaping it ourselves because it, 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 you, can't, you can't tear the two apart. And one way of kind of reckon, reckoning with that difficult, well, there are two ways we might reckon with that difficulty. One is we might just kind of lean into it and say, there is no past without the present and vice versa. And therefore the past, that's not to say that the past has to be usable, but that the past is always gonna speak in some way to us because we are the ones seeking it out in the first place. Mm. Um, and the other way, and it's they're obviously complementary in some ways, is to acknowledge that we will never fully know the past, right? The past is something that is 
in some sense, always going to be out of reach. Uh, it's never going to be fully knowable because the past is essentially different from us. Um, and so how might we reckon with that fundamental unknowability about, because you know, which exists by virtue of our position in the present? How should a historian deal with that? Um, in my own work, I, I try and kind of lean into this unknowability. Like, it, you know, I am interested in how uh, people understood themselves, but I also acknowledge I really can't ever understand. I can uh, I can only lay out a certain set of possibilities um, uh, that ultimately, you know, I might have a guess about which one is more likely, but uh, fundamentally, these are people whose life experience was were different from mine, and and I can't a, a police record is not going to tell me what they felt. Um, so uh, those are the kind of tensions I see in in, in current uh, current work within um, queer historicism. Well, yeah, that effective feeling of trying to place yourself when especially the allure of the archive or I just remember there were so many yeah. books currently written about the mystery the allure the mysticism yeah. there's like just trying to figure out why the archive it was like when I held the first picture of Dorian Gray copy mm -hmm. from Philadelphia at the British Library there is something so beautifully um untranslatable about that feeling but at the same time you're right you can easily get pulled and thrown into thinking that you actually understand the writer or this mm -hmm. perspective of their identity. But I think for your work, what I love so much with public city, public sex is Andrew, you really balance that. I guess we could call it history of sexuality, the old historicist. I mean, I don't, you know, for all listening right now, I'm making a generalization, but that, we're not going the anachronistic argument to me is what I think about with old historicism and new historicism is if we're going to stay away from current LGBTQ language, you are doing more of that old historicist. Like, how does the archive speak? Like, how are these men described in the letters, in the legal documents? Um, instead of saying, oh, these men, even the Marquis de Sade is bisexual or Lord Byron is bisexual. Like that to me is a new historicist model. So and I think, like you said, right now in our current moment, we're using both. Like to talk about our subjectivity, like we have to explain ourselves as the scholar or the historian in the preface even of what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to like define our purpose and our, our relationship to our own uh evidence, right? So, you know, there's a tendency, and certainly I, when I first started in this field, a tendency to enter the archives kind of wanting to see the history of ourselves. Um, I talk about this a bit in a, in an article I have in French historical studies, right? The, this, there is a desire and it's a justifiable desire to find ourselves in the past, right? Whether it's in the archive or in the Marquis de Sade or, or um, uh, in, a, in, a, in another novel or in a film, we want to see ourselves. Um, that's not necessarily our job right? It might give us pleasure. And there might be some use to it. I mean, especially when the history of sexuality was first getting going in a context where homosexuality was often illegal. People thought it was uh, um, an, an illness. Uh, there is real reason to want to say, for instance, that the Marquis de Sade was bi uh, or that, um, I don't know, Alexandre the Great was gay, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so I get I get the impulse and it's been a while since we wanted to do that.
Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. And when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram, all of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Also, I'm really excited to announce that the December book club choice is Britney Spears's The Woman in Me memoir. So to join the book club, head to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and go to events and you're going to see a form there just so I know how many of you are joining the book club. And that way I can reach out to each of your email addresses and poll all of you to see what date at the end of December works. It's going to be the week after Christmas. So don't worry, it's not going to be the week of Christmas. That would be hectic. And then I'll let you all know how to join the book club, which happens on Patreon. You just join under the ITBR book club section. So can't wait to see who wants to discuss Britney Spears. We have a lot to dissect there. And in the also, if you want to join the Wicked Broadway Musical group event, which is happening in March, head to that event section on the website and fill out that Google form by December 1st. Ah, so much happening here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I love this community. I love being the host and director of this arts and culture organization. Thank you all for supporting me. It means so much. And please spread the word for my consultation services, for the podcast, the book club, the Broadway musical, group event, all the things. And without further ado, here's today's episode. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, 
Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Um, but I think it's the same impulse that leads us to go into the archives to be like, I'm going to study the emergence of me, right? With the kind of social, the classic social constructionist um, approach. Uh, whereas now I think we're kind of more interested in, I want to do the history of them. And that might not actually serve me, <laughs> right? Um, they might be so different. They might be so unusual that it's not going to serve my purposes here in the now. Because, you know, sometimes... People in the past were doing things that were not politi are not politically salient today, for instance, right? Um, age differentiated sexual relations between men, a kind of the classic, a kind of a classic paradigm throughout history, um, have a, has a very different connotation to uh today, right? And there there was a recent book uh exploring some of the some of the kind of the the pitfalls of or a, a recent, I think, edited collection actually the pitfalls of studying um, those kind of relationships, um, those might not serve us, right? But that doesn't mean they're not worth examining uh, on their own terms uh, in many respects. Well, and I think now I've teased the Marquis de Sade and you've talked a little, um, but to tease everyone even further out there, uh, I think though, to you know, as we're going to get into the 19th century Paris with public city, public sex, Paris is a city that I just am fascinated with. Um, I was lucky I've been there two times, but so don't worry, everyone out there, there's going to be Parisian talk. Uh, and I want to hear Andrew's thoughts on just that whole 19th century sexual culture. But if you could take us, Andrew, back to the Enlightenment, just because you had that co-edited collection. Mm -hmm. from the enlightenment i mean it was from the enlightenment to present i think we're not we don't have to go to the present uh we could stop at the 19th century but i'm just curious like the trend like what you've seen with sexual history in france right so we'll take just france as an example is it true when people say i'm sure you hear this from your students all the time from an american perspective or even a british perspective um you can even see it in like charles dickens um, tale of two cities with the difference of gender relations that, mm -hmm. oh, France was always just so more, oh, it was open. It was liberal. They were illicit with their desire and it was all accept acceptable, even from the enlightenment. Like, how mm -hmm. do you explain what was even happening in that burst of culture in the enlightenment? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, one of the essays in that, in that volume uh, by Lisa Graham is really interested in some of those questions. Um, Precisely because what one what she argues is that you can't understand the Enlightenment without trying to understand how Enlightenment thinkers understood pleasure. That pleasure was kind of fundamental to their um, kind of conceptualizations of the possibilities of like the rational, the rational man, right? And how how these two things uh, dialogue with one with one another. Um, and certainly, I mean, French culture has in many respects, you know. You know, in some ways, deservedly has this reputation for being a bit more. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Graham is interested in, um, uh, and uh, another uh, contributor in the in the volume, um, Jennifer Sessions, um, interested in the question of the libertine, 
right? And how libertine, uh, uh, libertine identity might relate to our understanding of uh, the flowering of Enlightenment discourse. Um, when it comes to queer history, there's a, there's a lot of debate about how the Enlightenment understood queer sexuality and its place in uh, French uh, French society. So one thing, you know, during the French Revolution, under Enlightenment principles, it eliminated the anti-sodomy statute from French law, which was then affirmed during, in the Napoleonic Code. So France becomes very unusual in not having a um, a ban on sodomy throughout, uh, you know, from the end of the 18th century through the 19th century, whereas most European countries continue to continue to have one. So there is this kind of um, libertarian aspect to French culture that comes from the Enlightenment. This kind of what you do in private is your is your business. But um, as uh, our volume kind of um, shows there's also a deep anxiety about what that means. Like what happens when you kind of unleash pleasure, when you unleash desire, when you, you know, when you, when you don't want to control it. And so at the same time, um, which I, I talk about briefly uh, at the beginning of, of, of my own book, um, there are these efforts to kind of, kind of clamp down. And so at the end of the 18th century, uh, also during the French Revolution, uh, you get the emergence of regulated forms of prostitution. So state involvement in um, uh, in sex work, which was, you know, ideologically um, uh, supposed to provide heterosexual men with safe outlets for their own sexual desires, right? So, um, you know, there are these interests in managing the, the, the kind of perceived threat of allowing people to kind of do what they want. Um, so, you know, French culture has always had this tension, uh, uh, but it's, it comes, becomes especially acute in the 18th century between this willingness to kind of live and let live, but also a deep fear of what the implications of that actually might mean for, for, for society. So who are some writers from the Enlightenment, like you would recommend to everyone out there, who are really starting to grasp or they're, they're articulating a gender, sexuality, uh, relationship or are just even keyed in on what's happening with sexual relations? Yeah, I mean, the most important um, is probably Rousseau, um, who, um, you know, he wrote obviously the social contract and he has his kind of his his reverie. But for our purposes, the most important are his his um, treatises on education, which in many respects are where the kind of modern idea of, of the pro of of kind of um, uh, private uh, and public spheres being differentiated along uh, along gender lines comes from. So this idea that women are are it's essentially heterosexual. Um, women are meant to serve the um, serve the husband. They are to um, educate young men into having public lives. Women stay at home. So it's really Rousseau that a lot of the kind of 19th century and 20th century ideas around uh, gender and sexual relations between men and women come into being. So I would definitely, you know, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. One other that, you know, all the alignment thinkers kind of touched on it. Like Voltaire has some quips about sodomy and Candide. Um, uh, his own, you know, there's always these rumors that he actually had sex with Frederick the Great. Like, so, you know, complicated. Um, one book I would recommend, it is, you know, I think it's in many ways homophobic, but it is an interesting text. Um, uh, Denny Diderot's The Nun. Um, which is the story of a woman who is forced into a convent. It's a, essentially an anti-religious tract, 
uh, a nun is forced into a contract and she is uh, essentially sexually assaulted, although she doesn't quite realize it by the mother superior. So the, the kind of thesis is that, you know, religious conservatism, right, this kind of enclosed space of women leads to sexual perversion. And so again, it's that fear of like, you know, that that too much pleasure comes from a kind of unnatural situation being this religious this religious order um uh, so well, care of that was basically it was in a co convent they're all nuns and there's this hysterical sexual frenzy um i think it's actually based off of um i'll have to look it up as we're talking but it's based off of a novel but i think i'm sure it has some allusion to what you're talking about with diderot and yeah the nun, our story is now back in, especially with Assault, we have The Nun 2 with The Conjuring Universe, with Halloween, we have, um, there's a Netflix series called The Seekers about actual real life assault in nunneries. So, or The Convent, I should say, nunneries, it sounds like I'm That's doing like, a, yeah, ha well, a Hamlet monologue. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so yeah, everyone out there, we need to like, even though you're saying it does have homophobic tendencies, it's a very interesting yeah. case well, there are other possible. I mean, I love that book. I I love those. It's it's really it's it's just a weird book. I mean, um, but there are other possibilities. Um, Lauren Groff's recent um book, The Matrix, kind of takes up the the more um liberatory um possibilities. It's a story about this earlier period in England of a woman who is exiled to a convent, becomes the mother superior, and um, you know. Um, is always trying to get back with this woman she was in love with outside the convent, but in order to do so, creates this kind of fantastical utopian female space that involves sexual relations among the nuns. So um, there is this other kind of possibility that's latent within these tropes um, that pre-exist Diderot about lesbian nuns, right? Um, yes, so I really so, do recommend that was a book that came out just a few years ago. It's, it's really wonderful. Oh, there's this everyone out there. It's this. Oh, the devils. Yes. From 1971. Because remember, okay. I don't know if you remember, Andrew, I'm obsessed with Vanessa Redgrave. She was in um, fairy tale theater, Snow White and okay. plays uh -huh. the um, queen. It's on YouTube for free, everyone. It's amazing. I think she's the best queen ever in Snow White. But in 1971, this is like around when she had done Camelot. She did Mary, Queen of Scots. So then she just has this theme going on with historical horror gothic. Um, and it's about a 17th century Roman Catholic priest accused of witchcraft after the possessions in Luden, France, that focuses on the okay. sister who's a sexually repressed nun. Yes, by Devils of Luden by Aldous Huxley. But I think is taking some of those, right, the witch trials in France that you're almost around that same period you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, earlier than mine, but around the time of uh, Lauren Groff's uh, book, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So from the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment is around what um, time period? Like what years would you place the Enlightenment? Uh, I mean, we usually just say the 18th century would, would do. So 1700s. Okay, so then when we move after the Enlightenment, like how does, I'm always just curious, how does the Marquis de Sade get such a reputation for being uh, so 
kinky and the illicit desire he shows in his, um, I would call them books, but they're almost like tracks uh, in a way or polemic missions of sex. And there's that one, is it how many days of Sodom? I'm trying to remember. Uh, I always, uh, I 98, I can't quite remember. Okay. Um, but yeah. he has, I think that was the only, if I remember, there could be more, but he's had a few that actually have been turned into movies. Mm -hmm. And I find that very interesting how he really becomes that libertine gone wild in a way. Um, but, you know, why do you think the Marquis de Sade is able to enter into this openly sexual escapade during his life? Um, I mean, de Sade is probably just the most famous of the pornography that was being produced during the period. Um, so he wasn't a lot. I mean, he's the most, you know, perhaps justified, most notorious. I mean, he was because he was thrown in prison. Um, he, he, they're pretty long, they're proper books. Um, but there was a whole wealth of pornography that was produced during um, the late 18th century. I mean, it's it's kind of a myth to think of the Enlightenment only as um, kind of these, these guys laying out these rational tracks like the, the spirit of the laws or something like that. There was a lot of... Um, Kind of what we might call the gutter press, right? And uh, the historian Robert Darton talks a lot about about this, where pornography was could be used to attack kind of po political systems and social in inequalities and that sort of thing. And you do that in order to kind of, you know, a get read because people like salacious stuff, but also play up and exaggerate the kinds of things uh, that you want to critique. And so perhaps most famously, there was a great deal of pornographic material produced about uh, Marie Antoinette. Um, so there were rumors that she was um, having an affair. Um, I mean, she was in love with this, this guy, um, that she that her children were born, were, were bastards, that she was a lesbian. And you can find these images of Marie Antoinette as lesbian, which is, you know, yes, it's salacious and... Um, uh, and titillating, but it's also a way of delegitimizing mm. the royal family of France. So, you know, Desaad might be the most famous, but he's only he's only one of this broader kind of, you know, production of, of pornographic literature during the late 18th century. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And the GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, 
writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and at times scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone. Happy winter. Happy holidays. I hope you all are merry and bright out there. I am here in Port Jefferson, New York on Long Island in one of my favorite stores. It is the Soapbox NY, a bath and body boutique. I'm here with one of the co-owners, Janine. Hi, Janine. Happy holidays. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Thank you. Good. So I know you have many winter scents to walk us through. So let's yes. get started because there's a lot to talk about and it's exciting so what is this that i'm holding this is a hand wash by one of our favorite companies greenwich bay uh, it's a gingerbread scent which is wonderful very christmasy very holiday-ish and you can follow it up by using greenwich bay's lotion is a hand and body lotion and to keep with that gingerbread scent is a um, sugar whip scrub it's a body scrub that you could use in the shower and it's by a company called primal elements and it's something I'm actually using currently. And I said to Janine, and she always laughs, that I really feel like I'm in Santa's bakery. So, oh, it is so yummy. It's good. It's a good one. And then, what are these adorable little yep. soap gifts? Jumping back to Greenwich Bay, this is a great little grab-and-go gift. Uh, great for a stocking stuffer. There are mini soaps by Greenwich Bay, and it just gives you a little sample of some of their mini soaps to try. Ooh, peppermint, yeah. mistletoe, holly. Yeah, it's wonderful. Cranberry. Yeah, and have some um, red in there too. And then what is this room spray? This is from company Michelle Design Works, another one of our favorites. Room spray that you can use any room in your house, just kind of freshens up the room a bit. And what is this by Michelle Design Also Works? by Michelle Design Works is Winter Blooms, one of their new scents this holiday season. It's great. It's um, a hand wash. You can use it in your kitchen or your bathroom. And then here's and something to follow it up with. Exactly. It's a hand and body lotion. And then what is this beautiful decorative candle here? One of our favorites that we actually sell mm. all year round because it's so popular. This is the scent of Fraser Fur by Times. I think I'm becoming addicted to it. Yes. I think you are because you already own one, I believe. I own one and it is a decorative candle for me because I'm about to open it, but it's just in such I know the packaging a beautiful is, package. I don't know what's better, the packaging or the scent. I'm using it wonderful. as a holiday decoration. So cool. I'll get to the candle eventually, everyone. Well, but it's wonderful because with Times and their Fraser fur, not only do they carry the candles, but they also make it in the scent in the diffuser, in soap, the hand lotion, the um, the hand soap. It's just a great line and a great scent. We're going to be Fraser furred 
uh, crazed this holiday season. I love it. And then what are these so adorable pajamas? My friends next to me, uh, a company called Hello Mellow. But these pajamas are so comfy. We have the t-shirts with the pajama pants. These happen to be the nutcrackers. One of my favorite this holiday season. And then they have the night shirts too. And they're so comfy. And it says, oh, what What fun fun. with the little Santa hat. Yes. And we have others as well. So Janine, how can everyone out there get their hands on your hand and body and even pajama products? Well, we'd be more than happy to see you in our shop. We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson Village. You could always call us to place an order. We're happy to ship to you. Our phone number is 631-509-1424. You can place an order on our website, soapboxny.com. And you could also find us on Instagram or TikTok at the soapboxny. So many options. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for all of you out there to just enjoy what I love so much about the Soapbox NY. So with that, thank you so much. Happy winter, everyone. And this is going to keep you all, especially in the Northeast, merry and cheery with our cold, dark days. Yes, I know they're coming, unfortunately, but we'll survive. But this will get you that pep in your your spirits. Exactly. There we go. Happy holidays. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres, and recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on Drs. Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So What better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. He becomes tokenized, is what you're saying. Like he becomes becomes the emblem because of his story and biography. And actually, shout out to my friend Eric. Speaking of a Parisian, an amazing (laughs) Parisian. And the first time I was there was a Whitman conference for the week. And I had stayed with Eric. He had opened up his um, flat or 
uh, condo. I'm not sure the terminology in Paris, but he was in Charenton. And I remember going for a beautiful run, just such a pretty place. Uh -huh. Lock to Charenton, everyone. It's like so close to the center of Paris. But that's where the um, mental health, the institution, or what would have been the insane, uh, insane asylum that, what, that the Marquis de Sade went to yeah. uh, was right there. So I just remember seeing a plaque about the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, and yeah. just for us to know, uh, for everyone out there who's screaming about the dates, it's 120 days of Sodom. There we go. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> it's a lot of days of Sodom and Gomorrah type escapades. And, you know, is it once you do like look through the Marquis de Sade, do you think that his sadistic tendencies are overplayed? Because that's what these movie representations, especially I think the 120 days of Sodom one, I've seen that one before in clips. There's a lot of whipping and like leather play. It's like that very really taking all of his writing in just kink BDSM almost culture. Is that yeah. accurate? Uh, well, it's honestly, it has been a long time since I've read the sod myself. I, I don't find it surprising though, because you know, we think one another reason why the sod is so famous is that he gives his name to sadism and masochism. And that's a 19th century story of, you know, pathologizing and rendering as diagnoses particular kinds of sexual acts, right? So the idea that, you know, someone's uh, interest in pain signifies something about their very self uh, is taken up in the 19th century, made a kind of a medical um, problem to be solved, and then becomes kind of a, a social question that can then be brought into uh, modern cinema or, you know, or literature. So his longevity is also related to the ways in which his, um, what he was interested in has become so central to our own understanding of what makes someone a sexual, uh, a sexual being in the first place. Well, I think you've just relaunched a Desaad book club for people. Oh, there we go. So okay. if, if, if people start reading Desaad more, we can attribute it to, you know, our conversation, Andrew. Maybe I'll yeah, even yeah. choose a Desaad for a book club that I'm doing here eventually. We'll see. Yeah, um, um, I have to like look back through his work again, but I don't want to let the Marie Antoinette pornography point drop because I thought it was so fascinating. And, you know, I'm sure how many times have you been to Paris? I would just love uh, to I, I, uh, I don't, I don't, I lost count. Let's put it that way. I, oh, I lived lot. there. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you lived there for how long? Uh, for about a year and a half during my dissertation research. Oh, wonderful. What uh, uh, is it? I always, whenever I'm with someone who actually knows French very well, because I have like a basic, I can order, Jodry, wait, oh, I'm not even going to try it right now. <laughs> if it comes back to me, I'll try it. Uh, but I can order an iced coffee. There you go. Hey, that's, was my that's concern. Important. That's important. Um, but I did always like start in French and just, you know, bonjour. Uh, oh, je voudrais acheter un café glacé. Okay, there you go. Perfect. And they, and in one of the Starbucks, they started clapping for me. Yeah. I, like, I have to say, it's such a, when you speak French and try and just communicate, or even if I just say, pardon, um, you know, can you please speak English? I think it's that to me, there's such an openness there. And it really is an open city, in my opinion, of just even relaxation. 
maybe again, it's because I don't speak French fluently. So I can kind of um, be an outsider still in a way to the culture. Yeah. Um, right. That's like the expatriate Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein model. Um, but you, I know, are fluent in French, I'm assuming. I uh, I would say I get by. Let's put it that way. My <laughs> you can order more than an iced coffee. I can, I can definitely order more than that iced coffee. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and I will work more on my French uh, yeah. <laughs> when I'm back. But what I just would love to know, like when you were living there even, I'm assuming you were had frequented or were around, is it La Marais or the really queer, and it's queer and Jewish, historically mm -hmm. section yeah. it was historically yeah. jewish but like now it's a very lgbtq center mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. nightlife and even there's really wonderful museums there so um and it's near republic which i absolutely love that mm -hmm. area yeah. too ah okay i need to get back to paris andrew <laughs> so anyone out there who has like if you want to hire me for consultation services in paris maybe i need a trip but what was it like actually being there? Like you said, for your dissertation, has things from even public city, public sex, are there aspects of your book that you feel you wouldn't have arrived at without knowing intimately the space and the city of Paris? Um, Honestly, not, I, I have to admit, probably not um, because, um, you know, one of the arguments in the last chapter of the book is that the kind of public, Cult, the public culture of sex begins to end in the 20th century, uh, in large part because of spaces like the, the Marais. So the book is largely about, uh, well, in part about uh, the ways in which queer men and women who, who uh, sold sex use public spaces to do so. They appropriated spaces that were constructed for other purposes uh, and made use of them as, as they will. Um, towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, a lot of these experiences became commercialized. So you have the emergence of the modern gay bar, first lesbian bars, then gay bars. Um, um, you have uh, Place Femme, which were um, uh, serving places with serving girls that were assumed to be available for prostitution. So a lot of the culture of public sex that I uh, see in the 19th century kind of moves inward and becomes you know, an agent of capitalism. Um, and that's kind of the Marais. Um, you know, there, there are obviously, you know, especially um, throughout the 20th century, there were spaces of public sex. The Tuileries Garden uh, remained uh, kind of uh, in the Bois de Boulogne uh, on the west side of the city, remained kind of notorious for this. Um, but, you know, and this is a positive to, to some extent. You don't have to, you know, you, you, you could go to the bars, you could go to the clubs, you could uh, there was a great queer bookstore that unfortunately is no longer in the Marais um, any longer. So there were new, there were spaces that we can go to that have kind of replaced in many respects a lot of the, the spaces that I, I talk about mostly um, in my book. So, you know, the geography has really shifted in such a way that a lot of it is very unfamiliar. Um, I mean, one thing that Paris never quite had in the same way that, say, a city like Amsterdam has is a red light district. Um, one thing I argue in the book is that a lot of this was very diffuse throughout the city. Obviously, the middle of the city was quite um, quite active. That's where the Tuileries are, um, you know, right by the Louvre. Um, but there wasn't like a central district. 
by the late 20th century, when you have the Marais, there suddenly is. And that really reconfigures how queer people are able to meet one another um, and encounter, you know, encounter with one another. I mean, the other thing I'll say is the the rise of app culture to, to you know, has really transformed how, how this works as well. When I was there, apps like Grindr, Tinder were just kind of becoming popular and that, but it already kind of affected what it was like to, to kind of go into the city, go to the Marais and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, and I think I would be amiss as a literary scholar without asking about in the 19th century, because that's what I study. But even with French literature, I've taught my students uh, Gaston Leroux, um, The Phantom of the Opera, which is so juicy. I mean, if, if people think the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical is steamy, they've never read the actual novel. It's so illicit. And the sex, the sexuality is just all over the place. Um, it's in a good way. I think it's a great novel. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but even if you can work your your way through Victor Hugo, uh, which I think I still have 100 pages left of Les Miserables, which yeah. is interesting. I feel like everyone like ends somewhere in the book. But, um, you know, why in the 19th century? Like, is there a marked difference, especially in your work? I know you're not right, you're interested in the historical archives, but in terms of literary fiction, is there a marked difference in even just how sexuality is starting to be discussed by these writers mm -hmm. because of, say, influences like Victorian sexology with John Addington Simmons or like the way that you even said, like spaces are starting to configure differently? Uh, I mean, absolutely. So like um, these authors are all responding to the things that, you know, I, I discuss most fully in the, in the book. Uh, Les Miserables is a good example, though less so about queer sexuality and more about sex work, right? Obviously, right, the, mm -hmm. the character Fontaine, um, who, you know, Hugo sees as kind of tragic, right? She's forced by her circumstances uh, to sell her body, to sell her hair, to sell her teeth, um, to sell sex, uh, and then dies because of it, right? And so for Hugo, the 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 fact of prostitution was not simply and note Hugo's writing in the the 1850s and 60s about an earlier period right so there's a bit of a time disjuncture um, but for Hugo prostitution was not a kind of individualized decision it was the result of social factors right and that becomes a major interest of writers of the 19th century so you know Balzac um, with um, um, the human comedy, right? The series of novels about the society of early 19th century France includes, of course, questions about sexuality, prostitution, but also um, male same-sex sexual desire in prisons and how that can like um, uh, uh, then gets applied once um, outside uh, prison walls. Uh, or Emile Zola at the other end of the 19th century who's really interested in how um, kind of among other things, he is interested in how degeneration or perversion gets passed down through families. Um, mm. And that leads him to consider, right, he's, it's not genetics, right? Um, nor is it really eugenics, but he is interested in heredity uh, and how you might understand heredity in terms of sexual behavior or sexual identity, sexual acts, sexual behavior. So like if we use those three examples, we can see how uh, literary interest in sexuality is deeply informed 
by and is trying to explain at the same time the kind of social changes and political changes and changes within the intellectual history that is uh, uh, sur surrounding them, right? Well, and Colette and Marcel Proust, I feel so, they owe so much. I mean, Colette is a trailblazer, of course. I want to, mm -hmm. especially as a female writer. And I thought it was a very good movie that came out in those last a few years ago. It's probably like eight years ago. Everything is lapsed <laughs> in my time. Yeah. But um, I think it was with Kira Knightley, right? That, Didn't that she... sounds right. I actually, I missed it, but I, <gasps> that sounds right. Oh, you have I, to watch yeah, it, Andrew. I, I'm not, so good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, especially with it out. specialty. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, Phil, like I'm not seeing the Napoleon movie either, I don't think so. <laughs> I see. I see. Um, <laughs> but right, because she's born in the late 19th century. To me, she's almost a not from the same social class, of course, but she's kind of America's Edith Wharton in a way is how I like to view it, because mm -hmm. she's responding to gendered culture Absolutely. from her perspective as a woman making a living on writing, li mm -hmm. a living as a writer, almost like Virginia Woolf, right, in England. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to say, like, th they also have their own, you know, white female privileges, but it is interesting to see these through lines with yeah. these writers. Absolutely. But I do have to ask, how do you weigh in on Marcel Proust? Because I feel like he can be a controversial figure. Um, so I need to know, you know, have you worked your way through his books? Like, what do you think of even his life with sex and sexuality? Um, I, in grad school, read most of In Search of Lost Time. I took a seminar um, uh, on it. Um, what I appreciate about Proust is that I see so much of what I saw in the archives in the book. Um, so especially around the use of public space, the way in which um, queer desire was changing uh, over time. I mean, he really in uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah volume talks about the closet and, and shame, right? I mean, this is most famously um, uh, interpreted by Eve Sedgwick in uh, uh, the epistemology of the closet. Um, but Proust seemed to understand the kind of ways in which queerness was going to be kind of both possibly pleasurable, but also this source of deep shame and, uh, and difficulty. And it's in Proust that we can really see, I think, the emergence of that kind of consciousness. Um, you know, we often, um, and uh, the, you know, literary critic Michael Lucy uh, talks a bit about this in, in a lot of his work, the relationship between Proust and Andre Gide, uh, Andre Gide famously in the 1920s comes out with a kind of coming out novel, uh, like I am I am gay. I mean, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated novel. It, novel isn't even quite the right word. Um, Proust um, was much more reticent to kind of lay down a marker like that, and it's in part because he had such a complicated relationship to his own sexuality, and that strikes me as much more typical than the you know, especially in the early 20th century, the kind of out and proud, although again, complicated because Jeed's defense of homosexuality is out, was not uh, egalitarian vision. It was kind of a masculinist one. Like it's good when it engages in this kind of, kind of classical, as, as we alluded to at the very beginning, this uh, or before we actually started um, talking, this kind of classical understanding of, of, of what makes someone uh, manly uh, whereas Proust, I see a bit more of the desire, the eroticism, 
um, that makes modern queer culture what it is today. Absolutely. I mean, I even argue John Addington Simmons and um, Havelock Ellis, they are not articulating a utopic all this fits all um even this fits all queer men let alone queer women which right. are rarely talked about in their work um and you know there's a reason why freud starts to pathologize in my opinion in on <clears throat> narcissism his essay there's a reason why he's able to really latch on to certain pathology is because simmons and ellis have already said there's a certain acceptable homosexuality and then there is almost the pervert or there is the pederast like they still use these um put down terms so yes. I'm, i appreciate you saying that even of how jeet is complicated and a marcel proust i do think the messy layers is what makes his work fascinating to me but it's almost the messy layers of oh my we ha well i have to mention even uh Genet, like mm -hmm. jean Genet, and it's um is it our lady of the flowers yeah, yeah. I think, okay, see, I know, I know some French literature, <laughs> but I, I've done my work. So, um, no, I, I love French literature. I have to say, French literature, eventually, I'm sure I'll interview someone who studies Russian literature, but it is not, I have to really work my way through Russian literature. Uh -huh. French literature speaks to my heart. Uh, Russian literature is tough for me, is it, uh, <laughs> especially Tolstoy. Um, so... I think my last question for you, Andrew, this has been such a pleasure. I've loved Absolutely. just all, you know, the rivulets and waves that we've written together here. Uh, so what is it about Public City, Public Sex, your book? What is one response? And it can be a general response, of course. Something that a reader of yours has taken away that you didn't expect, but it just really hit you in the gut in a positive way of, wow, I can't believe that really resonated or came out of my book. Hmm. I love that question. Um, the thing, I, I don't think this is just one person, but the one of the most common responses to my book is that people really appreciate that it is not simply about queer men, that it is also about queer men's relationship with uh, especially female sex workers. Um, because one of the things I argue is that in the 19th century, these are two very deeply enmeshed milieu that are understood in the same way and that interacted with one another. Um, and the reason I'm really glad that people appreciate that aspect of the book is that it's, I mean, A, it's just a important part of the argument because one of the, is just, you cannot understand the 19th century queer life without understanding the life of working class women. Uh, you just can't. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also, in terms of the book's politics, I hope opens up a space to think more clearly about how we might construct a sexual politics that is a bit less, um, uh, a bit less, if not classist, a bit less constrained by the various identities that we see ourselves inhabiting. Um, it would be nice if the human rights campaign, and I've not been too up on, on what they're up to it these days, so forgive me if this is incorrect, would engage a bit more with sex workers' rights, um, as just one example. Um, so I, 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 I'm really glad that that's resonated with, with folks who have read the book. Imagine that 
you're riding the Turner Classic Movie Great Movie Ride in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz, where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, that's the memory I have with the Great Movie Ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Happy almost holiday season. Because the holidays are upon us, I'm sure so many of you out there are thinking, oh my, what am I going to get my friends, my family, my children, my romantic partner, my husband, my wife, any, you know, significant person in your life. Look no further than my good friend, Mandy Bengal, who makes handmade crocheted items. Her company is called Mandy Made It. You can follow her on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. And you will see all of these crocheted items that she's going to be able to customize for you, including special characters, sports team figures, even holiday items like a snowflake or a Christmas tree. So I have Mandy's keychains. I have the poison apple from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I have a rainbow um, flag that she made me. So Mandy is able to really customize an order just depending on what your hobbies and passions are. And you know, what item you're really looking for. So because you're listening to me talk about Mandy, she said that anyone who goes to Mandy Made It on Instagram and orders from her, and they've heard the Ivory Tower Boiler Room ad, she will give you all a free Ivory Tower Boiler Room t-shirt with your order. So head right now to Mandy Made It. You know, if you were really looking for that special gift, now you don't have to look any further because I have you covered with Mandy Made It. Okay, I hope you all enjoy your items from Mandy Made It. And please make sure that you take a photo of your crocheted items so that we can share it out on our social media. I know Mandy would love that and I would love to see what you all are ordering from her. She even has an adorable pillow called Netflix and Chill. And she has these cute coasters that she crochets for your favorite coffee or tea mug. So enjoy all your Mandy Made It products. Yeah, well, your book, especially even in its subtitle, it's 
homosexuality, prostitution, and urban culture in 19th century Paris. Like these groups are all living in the same quarters. And I agree with you. I mean, what you say about sex workers' rights, I would even advocate because I've had Tim Dean on the show and Thomas mm -hmm. uh, Wall and about porn workers' rights. And mm -hmm. I mean, which is under sex workers, but like the subfield of like there are those who are empowered by the work they're doing and it's, you know, putting down those, their industries is not helpful for mm -hmm. the sake of respectability politics. Like yeah. the thing is, yes. Do I want eventually to have a child and a husband? I do, but that's my decision. But I also don't want to exclude other industries or like other people's ways of loving and living sexually. So I'm so glad you said that, Andrew. I think that, You've even said there's a lot of messiness, but we don't have to um, you're, you don't have to make sense out of the 19th century, especially what you're doing with Paris, which why your book is just has caused such conversations in wonderful ways is you're a model for me as well, because we don't have to throw um, ex try to explain you know everyone's sexuality that you're trying to articulate that this is all queer male experiences in Paris like again you're looking at you're restricted by the archive but it also is telling its story about mm -hmm. the police records and you know how men were surveilled in Paris and it, how prostitutes were surveilled and that a lot of the times they ended up in the same prison system. So I thank you for that, Andrew. This has been thank wonderful. You. I'm Absolutely. excited. I think Andrew might come back on the show eventually in a different capacity, but there'll be time, but I'm we'll going to talk, talk about to him. It. Sounds great. We'll talk about it. So everyone out there, please get your hands on Andrew is Andrew Israel Ross's public city, public sex by temple university press. I have a link in the show notes. I have a link to Andrew's website, to his work, um, again, he had co-edited that series on the enlightenment to the present with sexuality. Um, and I think you all have a lot to read out there, especially if you've never read French literature. He's given you a lot of books, a lot of <laughs> recommendations. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. This has been a wonderful time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks. Okay. Well, bye out there, everyone. And yeah, let us you know, Andrew has an Instagram. So if you're reading his book, make sure you tag him so he That's can see all his lovers. Well, I did. Re I recently made it private because I too many students were seeing. So like, <laughs> not that okay, there's well, there, but do tag well, me. I will follow yeah, you back. Do tag him. Do tag him. You can still <laughs> tag him. Okay. Well, thanks, Andrew. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye bye.